You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Welcome, Sienna, Cypress, downtown, digital family as well. It's so good to be back. I've been in the Holy Land for the last 10 days, been back about a week now, and it's so good to just be home. So thanks for your prayers. It was an amazing, amazing trip. We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 13 about God and government. If you got your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 13. God and government is what we're going to be talking about. And I want to ask you as you're turning there, does anybody think it's a little weird that I'm wearing AirPods right now about to preach a sermon? Anybody wondering, well, what in the world are you listening to while you're telling us stuff? What's going on? What you got going on? A little podcast happening or something like that. Why are you wearing AirPods? Well, I want it to be symbolic of this. As we talk about God and government, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to take out of your ear Fox News and CNN. And I'm going to ask you to take out of your ear your favorite candidate and your favorite person that you love and that party that you love and all the viewpoints that you have and just take those AirPods out of your ear and put them up because what's going to happen is these things that get so loud, we've got to be able to remove it so that we can hear from God. And we can be able to hear from the Bible. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody put your two fingers together of your two hands. And I want you to symbolically take out whatever media source you like, that website only you know about that tells all the truth. Take that one out. (laughs) And then take out whatever persuasion you've got and whatever, whoever you love, whoever you want this to happen and that, that, whatever. Let's just take those out and let's see if that clears our ears a bit to be able to hear from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 13, I love that this message is falling at this time because those AirPods are gonna get really, really loud in about 18 months. And for us to be able to have this message now to understand. So we're gonna look and we're gonna see Romans 13 verses one through seven. And I'm gonna show you how this verse of scripture was actually in play in the American Revolution. And that's what we're going to end with. So a lot of information coming. You've got a listening guide. I hope you'll fill it out and so that we can journey together. But Paul's going to begin with talking about us, not talking about government officials, not talking about a government. He's going to begin by talking about the believers in Christ. How do they respond to government? And so I ask you this question, how is respect for authority in our country right now? How do you feel like that's going? Ask an umpire, ask a referee, ask an employer, ask a teacher, ask a coach. How is respect for authority going in our country right now? Just from my own personal life, we, uh, I've got two kids, wonderful kids, and I've been to every sporting event that you can ever imagine, as your parents know. And so one sporting event, we were sitting on the front row. It was me, my wife, and my mom sitting there, the three of us there, watching this sporting event. And it was about halfway through uh, the time, and this 14-year-old boy, I'm guessing 14, 15, comes in, and we're sitting on the front row watching the game. It's a good game. It's, there's no media at the game. It's not going to be on the news that night. It's not the championship game. It's just a game. And he comes through and he gets in our face. He goes, losers, you're going down. We're taking you out, losers. And I went, he walked up to his seat and my wife leaned over and goes, was that for us? And I went, I think it was. And then I sat there. I was like, that was the weirdest thing. Why? What? I don't know. 
was that a joke? What was going on? So the game ends and they win. His team wins. And it was a great game and they should have won. They did a great job. And he comes back down and now we're standing up talking to all the, all the parents that are there. And he comes right back to us, gets back in our face. Loser, y'all lost. We got y'all. Y'all are losers. And at this point I went, come here, son. <laughs> and I put my hand on his shoulder real nicely. And I looked him at the eye and I said, I'm about to teach you a life lesson. And he was like, okay. And I said, I'm about 40 years older than you. And when you talk to somebody my age, you say yes, sir, and no, sir. Am I clear? And he goes, yes, sir. And I said, y'all played a great game, good game, have a great day. And he walked off. But that's just a little microcosm that I couldn't imagine being a 14-year-old getting in front of a, two parents in a grandmother's face doing all that. But that's a symbolic representation of where we are in the disrespect for authority, isn't it? It's just a small little microcosm that we could throw that out to police departments. We could throw that out to teachers. We could throw that out to employers. We could throw that out to parents with students treating your parents. You shouldn't treat them bad, students, to be able to respect authority. And Paul's going to begin with the respect of authority. And this respect of authority is going to be a moment where we have to go, okay, how do we respond to government? Instead of just how is government responding to us? Look at Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse one, and we're gonna go through one through four, and then we'll jump into the rest of it. Here's what it says. Let everyone, everyone, you included in that? Everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. Verse 4. For it is God's servant. I want you to underline God's servant. We'll see that three times. It is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is, again, God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So the first point that we get here is this. Government is instituted by God. Government is instituted by God. God has put together three institutions. He has instituted government, he's instituted the church, and he's instituted the family. And when the government and the church and the family and all those institutions are respected in the right way and doing the right things as those entities as well, then we've got a society that makes sense. But when the government's doing their own thing and the family is destroyed and the church appears irrelevant and sidelined, then we got a problem. And so God has instituted the government for all of us to realize that we live in voluntary submission. Now, this is key. Paul did not use the word commanded obedience. He uses a word voluntary submission. So he says everyone is submission submitted to the government authority since there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. We live in voluntary submission. I've divided that word out. What does submission mean? Because we don't like that word because we don't like authority. So when we get to a word that says we have to submit, we go, wait, 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 I I want to submit. I want to be my own individual. Well, what submission means is this, is that you would put your life and I would put my life as a secondary mission to a greater mission. It would be a sub 
mission. So the way that it works best in sports is when the player is submissive to the vision of the coach. The way it works best is when in the military, the private is sub to the mission of the sergeant or the commander. That's how it's got to work. It works best when the family is submissive, the kids are submissive to the parents. There's a submission to acquire and to accomplish this mission. We've got to put ourselves underneath something that's greater than us. Now you'll see it all the time in sports, a tremendously talented player that'll get talented player that'll get traded because they're too much of a problem on the team. They're a great individual player, but they don't know how to be submission to the goal of the team. Happens all the time. And so we've got to be able to understand this word of submission is actually a freeing word. And he says, all of us, everyone, now here's the deal. I feel like I can drive 80 miles an hour very safely. It's the rest of you people that are the problem, right? We all think like that, don't we? But we have to be submissive to stay under the speed limit so that society is able to flow in the right ways. So Paul begins with us and he says, I want you to be submissive. Place your mission underneath a bigger mission. So let's place ourselves underneath the bigger mission of the government, but more importantly, the bigger mission of God himself, right? Not my will, but yours be done. So we want to be submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for a king. We got the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. And so this submission part is a place. It's in. Now, Paul's saying this in a context that's really mind-blowing. Nero is the head of Rome at this time. Are you familiar with Nero? Nero murders his mom, Nero, Nero murders his wife, Nero takes Christians, places them on a stake, covers them in oil, and sets them aflame to give light to his gardens for his parties. Can you imagine lighting human beings up to be able to give light to your parties? And the Romans were so macabre and so bloodthirsty, they didn't even see a problem with it. Nero would throw Christians out to the lions in the Colosseum. Nero is going to crucify Peter. Nero is going to behead Paul. And some scholars think it's going to happen on the same day. Can you imagine as a believer in Christ, Peter and Paul are martyred on the same day? How much fear would that put into you? Nero is going to burn down Rome and blame it on the Christians. Nero is ultimately going to commit suicide. That's who is the leader as Paul is saying these things. That's very interesting, isn't it? I remember being in Rome and they have Nero a brand of coffee shops called Nero's Coffee Shop. And I was like, do you guys not know your history? I mean, what's going on here? I'm not going in there. I'm not, I'm not going in. I, don't, I know the barista doesn't know what's going on with Nero, I guess. But I, I get my coffee somewhere else, right? Nero is a bad, bad dude. And he's the one that's in charge. Now, Paul says, if you don't want to be afraid of the government, then here's what you've got to do. Here's what it says in verse three. For rulers are not there, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. Do what's right and you'll have no fright. Do right, no fright. You ever been driving a little bit too fast and you see that police officer with the radar gun? What happens in your heart? Fear. Start looking in the rear view mirror. Oh, he's not turning around. He's not turning around. He's not turning around. This is what I'm told. This is what I'm told. <laughs> but if you're like pegged it on the speed limit and you pass the police officer, you're like, hey, give me a prize, right? Because there's no fear in doing what's right. And then he says at the end of this, and this is, this is a very key verse. It says, for 
It is God's servant, or excuse me, verse four, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what, uh, if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for a reason for it is God's servant to bring an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. The government bears the sword for the protection of people, property, and society. The government bears the sword for the protection of people, property, and society. Now, unfortunately, we need the police. Unfortunately, we need war at times. I'm not for most in war, but I'm just telling you, if World War II wouldn't have happened, we might be speaking German right now. Unfortunately, we need courts. We need jails. We need laws. We need order. We need police. We need, you know, go on and on with it. Because the sword, there are bad people out there that want to do bad things. Do you want the police to patrol your neighborhood? I want them to patrol mine. Do we want us to be able to take bad folks and put them into jail so that they can't do it again? Yes, we do. So the government does not bear the sword for nothing. And this sword also reminds us, just by the way, that there will be an eternal judgment at some point. So there's judgment that's on earth when you do wrong, but there'll be an eternal judgment as well. And that's why receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and letting Jesus forgive your sins takes care of that so that you can step into heaven and walk with God for all of eternity. Now, you may not have committed a felony, but every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we come and we say, we know there's a judgment coming, so we want to trust in Jesus to be our Savior. So our heart as believers, Paul is saying, I want you to shine with Christ through being voluntarily submissive to the government. Submission. Now, let me just give you a statement out of uh, our faith and belief, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message, and it's section 17, Religious Liberties. We didn't come under, uh, make this up. This is our entire denomination, and that's our statement of beliefs that we have, have received. It says this about religious liberty. Civil government being ordained of God is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereunto in all things, listen, not contrary to the revealed will of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. What if the government tells you to do something that's contrary to God? The government, excuse me, this is a key phrase. The church should not resort to civil power to carry on its work. Let me just tell you, the power of the Holy Spirit of God through Jesus Christ is the power of the church. It's not civil law. It's not civil government. It's the power of God through the church. So right there, it says the church should not resort to civil power to carry on its work. This is a great phrase. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. I'm trying to make the church on top of the government, not trying to make the government on top of the church. A free church to preach the gospel and to live out our faith in a free state is the Christian ideal. So now let's look, we've looked at our heart. We're gonna look a little bit more at our heart, but let's ask the question about government. Verse four, I wanna read it to you again. For what, for it is God's servant, I had you underline that, number one, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is, number two, God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Number, verse five, therefore you must submit, there's that word again, not only because of the wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are, third time, underline it again, God's servants 
continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to the one you owe taxes, tolls to the ones you owe tolls, respect to the ones you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. So it says there three times, government is God's servant. Government is God's servant. God has established government, he's established the church, he's established the home, and he intends for government to be God's servant. That his will would be able to go forth, and so government is God's servant. Now, we're going to get into, I'm going to tell you that in just a second about being God's servant. Well, let me just do it now. Three times it says here, God's servant. The first two times is a different Greek word than the third time, okay? Interesting, isn't it? The first two times is the Greek word diakonos. It's the word from which we get the word deacon, okay? It means to be a servant. And so we should all as believers in Christ be servants, but that's the word that he uses for the first two. Diakonos is the first word, or the first, uh, the word used for the first two. The third time when he begins to talk about taxes, he changes it from just common servant to a Greek word that means special servant or watch, public servant, public servant. So now this third word means a worker for the people a special place of service when taxes are mentioned. Now that's really key, isn't it? Because he's saying now there's a relationship. The response of the people is gonna be taxes and honor and tolls and respect, but the response of the government is gonna be able to serve the people. So not being a self-serving government, but being a people-serving government for the betterment of society. So government is God's servant three times, and the third time when money begins to be involved and there's a relationship of exchange, he says, now I want to up it again, you're a public servant as government. You're to serve the people and do what is best for the people, not what is best for the government. So that's one key there. And he says, now, because of that, this relationship, we as believers, we submit from the head and the heart to avoid punishment. We submit, we talked about that word, from the head, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to get sued. I don't want to do these things wrong because I'll get in trouble. From the head, but also the heart. Look at what he says in verse 5. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, that's the head, but also because of your conscience, that's the heart. So a believer in Jesus Christ should submit to the mission and be submissive out of conscience as well as out of head, okay? So the reason I don't lie, the reason I don't cheat, the reason I don't steal is not because I'm going to get in trouble. How many times have you seen people? When are they sorry? They're sorry when they get caught. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are sorry, if you will. You don't do these things because of your conscience. You know that it's wrong because of your relationship with Christ or just basic morality, you know that it's wrong. And so he says, I want you to be submissive. I want you to obey the laws of the land, not just because you don't want to get caught. I want you to obey it because you know in your heart it's the right thing to do. You see how that's a whole nother level, isn't it? And so in that conscience is where we function from. Do you know that the IRS has what's called a conscience fund? If you feel bad about something, they'll allow you to send in money with an anonymous note. It's true. 1811 is the first time that it happened. And since 1811, they've had the conscience fund. They've had the smallest gift of nine cents. Someone stole three cent stamps and removed them and put them on different envelopes to mail stuff. 
and they felt bad about it and they sent in nine cents to the government. The largest gift was 155,000 that was sent in. I don't know what they did for that. Most gifts are under $100. There's not a lot of money in this account, but it's called the conscience fund. And one person, he wrote in a check and he sent it in. He said, for the time and the tools I stole while I was in the Navy, I want to send this money in. What happened? His conscience got him. And so he sent in that money. And God wants us as believers in Christ to move from a conscience, from a heart that says, I'm going to do what's right before God. And Christians should be the most winsome citizens in all of society because we're doing it from the heart and we're praying for our leaders and we're asking God to do something great in our country. So a servant combined with a heartfelt submission, this servant of government is government is to be God's servant. Do you know where the word candidate comes from? It's very interesting. And the word candidate comes from ancient Rome. What are we looking at? We're looking at ancient Rome through the book of Romans. It was a gleaming white toga that the politicians would wear. Their toga was whiter than any other toga. It was whitened by power, or power, that wouldn't that actually be the opposite. Whitened by powder is what I mean to say. And so this white toga, they called it the toga candida. And it came from the Latin word candare, which means to whiten. We get the English word candidate from that word, one seeking office. And we get the word candid for truth from that same word. So the white toga of ancient Rome symbolized the truthfulness of the candidate. And we need that restoration, don't we? To have that truthfulness, to be able to restore that and to say, I want to be a public servant and a servant of God. Government officials are first of all serving God, whether they know it or not. Many have forgotten this. Not all. Not all. But some have forgotten this. And here's the deal. For this to operate as Romans 13 speaks about, then there's got to be a knowledge that there's a serving of a higher mission than even the government mission, and that is serving of the Lord. Here's the deal. I don't know how we're going to have servants of God by electing people who actually are opposed to God and the things of God. How's that going to square? Am I saying every person's got to be a Christian? No, I'm not. I'm just saying when the things of God actually are attacked by the person, how in the world are they going to be a servant of God and then, as a result, a servant to the people? So here Paul has given us two things. We're to be submissive and the government's to be a servant. But the problems are we have removed submission of the people and we've removed servanthood of officials in many ways. And now the government is seen as the savior and the provider instead of God himself, becoming both now, both political and theological. See, the problem is not that the church has become too political. The problem is that the government has become too theological. And so now they're into places that is theology instead of politics. And that in lies a big rub between the things of God and the things that are often promoted in our country. So we pray. So we winsomely walk with God at the same time and we trust the Lord. The government is not intended to be God himself. The government is intended to be a, an institute of God, servants of God. 
And too many of us, even believers, you're waiting for that one man or that woman that's gonna change everything. And he's already come. His name is Jesus. He's already come. His name is Jesus. Now, we want to put great people in office and we want to follow leadership. I've just spent 23 minutes on submission, okay? And for us to be able to celebrate that. So what do we do? Well, we do our part. Look at verse six. Verse six says this. And for this reason, you pay taxes since authorities are, here it is. Now you know what you're talking about. God's servants, public servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect and honor to those you owe respect and honor. We do our part. The word in the Greek literally means to give back, to pay our taxes is to give back. We receive things from the government and we have to pay for our things for the government as well. Now, there's things we pay for we don't like but I'm really glad for military protection. Really glad for our soldiers, really glad for our troops, really glad for many, 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 many things in our government. So we are giving back taxes, tolls, respect, and honor. Even Jesus paid taxes. Do you know that? Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 through 21. He said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27. They asked, does your master pay taxes? And the disciples said, he sure does. And then they came back and said, do you pay taxes? And he said, I sure do. They're like, whatever's the right thing to do, Jesus is going to do it. And they said, Peter, go fishing and you'll find a coin in the mouth of the fish. Just when I was in the Holy Land a couple weeks ago, we were served St. Peter's fish. And you can literally get this whole fish with a coin in its mouth, talking about this exact story that's here. So Jesus paid taxes and Paul is wanting the Roman believers to be impactful and winsome. And this is how. Christian citizenship is from the heart and we should be winsome in our citizenship. We should be the best citizens in the nation, in the planet, on the face of the earth. And Paul saw Romans 13 as a way to shine with Christ. So let's ask an interesting question. So what if the government, submission to the government, negates our submission to God? What if Obeying the government and the laws means disobeying God. What do you do? It's what's called civil disobedience. So when is civil disobedience called for? Now, I'm not beginning a revolution here today. That's not my intent, okay? And I'm not saying there's not peaceful protests and petitions and all those sort of things. This is talking about the overthrowing of a government. Okay? The overthrowing of, of a law, if you will, of all those, those sort of things, of civil disobedience. Okay? So let's ask this question because I'm going to show you some biblical examples of this. Number one, rarely and with great wisdom only as a last resort. Rarely and with great wisdom only as a last resort. So Civil disobedience, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. Exodus chapter 1, the Jewish midwives were told to kill every young Hebrew boy that was born. Remember that? They said, we will not do it. Joshua chapter 2, Rahab the harlot is hiding spies in her house. And the king, I read it last night, the king sends word to her, where are the spies? And she lies and says, they went that way. Daniel defies Nebuchadnezzar by continuing to pray. Jonathan disobeys Saul by protecting David. 
In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, let me show you here with the beginning here uh, of the early church. So they called on them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And after they brought them in, they brought them to stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Okay? So, in this we see that if there's a place in which the government says you cannot pray, we as believers continue to pray. You cannot have faith in Jesus Christ, we continue to have faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot share the gospel, we continue to share the gospel. You have to dismember the church and church is over, we continue to meet. You see the difference? It's not about political preference, it's not about things Here's the opportunity we have. Every four years or X years, whatever the election cycle is, we have the opportunity to put new people in place. So the way we show civil disobedience is through our vote is how we do it. And protest if you want, and petition if you want, and stand strong, and all of those things. But you have to also receive the government's punishment as well. Paul spent a lot of time in prison. Jesus was crucified. Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed. Roman Christians were martyred. There's a consequence that can happen, but we've got to be able to say, we're gonna follow God and we're gonna walk with God in these ways. And that brings good, healthy change as well. So it's good. So am I calling you to some kind of revolt and you know, new American revolution? No, I'm not. I'm just trying to answer questions of how things that are asked and how we look through history. Because this passage of Scripture is actually a piece of our American history. Do you realize that? This is key. This passage of Scripture was key in the American Revolution. Now, interesting, let me give you a place of civil disobedience. It's an interesting one. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? We're coming up on Easter, and all the soldiers come, and Peter pulls out his sword and lops off the ear. And what does Jesus do? He takes the ear and puts it back on the servant, which if I'm a soldier coming to arrest somebody for being the Messiah, and I see the ear go back on, I'm going home at that point, you know? I mean... I'm done. But these guys kept on walking. Why did Jesus do that? I mean, didn't Peter do the right thing by this is wrong? He shouldn't have done this? Because the cross was a part of the will of God to save your soul and save my soul. And Jesus died numbered among criminals, falsely accused, so he could be your savior and your king of kings and lord of lords. So what have we said so far? And I'm going to give you an example. Paul, what has Paul said, really? Paul said, we have to have a submission underneath the bigger mission, that the government has a servantness to them, that that's there to be a servant of God, a tool of the Lord. And so let's put those two things together to have it function in the correct way. And then now as we get into this next part, to be able to say, well, what happens if it's contradictory of the government and the laws of God? Well, we go with God. And we go with God in a winsome way to be able to share Christ with people even in that way. So let me give you this example and we'll be wrapping up. The American Revolution is 
the seeds of it are right here in Romans 13. Let me teach you some American history. Let me ask you a question. Would you have been a loyalist or would you have been a patriot? And we all now have seen enough movies. We're like, patriot! But you'll see here, both of them had Bible verses going, and I'm, I'm a patriot, I promise. That's the one I want to be. But to be able to see this, it's listed out. Here's the deal. The loyalists took Romans 13, 1 and 2, and the patriots took Romans 13, 6 and 7. Okay? And they both preached it as if this is the way, this is the only way. So what did the loyalists, let's start with them. There was a, a, a pastor, his name was Jonathan Boucher, and he was the uh, rector of St. Anne's Parish in Annapolis, Maryland. And he took it as a loyalist that we obey the government no matter what. Remember the first verses? Let everyone submit to the governing authority since there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that are instituted exist by God. So then no one who resists the authority is opposing, or excuse me, so then one who resists God, the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring, this is key, judgment on themselves. The King James Version translated that word judgment as damnation. So those who resist the authority are opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring damnation on themselves. And some of the loyalists would preach, you would lose your salvation if you didn't follow the king. You see it? And this pastor here in Annapolis, his quote, he said, I ascended the pulpit with my sermon in one hand and a loaded pistol in the other. Underneath his vestments, under his robe, he had a loaded pistol because he was preaching we had to stay with the king and his congregation turned into an angry mob of patriots and actually ran him off and he had to go back to England as a loyalist. So that's the loyalist, verses one and two. The patriots took verses six and seven. And for this reason, you shall pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls. Can you hear taxation without representation coming out of this? Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. So the loyalist, and a good example would be John Locke, they took all of the verses, these verses and others, any verse that talked about liberty, and they took it as liberty to be civil liberty instead of just spiritual liberty. And they took this last part, and here's what they said. If you're not worthy of honor, we're not going to show you honor. If you're not worthy of respect, we're not going to show you respect. You hear what that said there in that verse? Respect those you owe respect, verse 7, and honor those you owe honor. And so they said, you are no longer worthy of honor and respect. Therefore, independence is our next step. And they tried, remember when I said last resort? They tried and tried. It wasn't us against a monarchy. It was against a tyranny. And they tried over and over and over and over again. Thomas Jefferson gave 27 grievances of here's the things, if we could fix these things, trying to give it. Those actually end up in the Declaration of Independence. You'll see those uh, being listed in that, not quite one by one by one, but that you could count them out. And they're all uh, in there, I believe, in that spot. And so, and then you get to the last, or excuse me, the third to last paragraph of the United States Declaration of Independence. Let me put it on the screen for you. See if you can hear Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. If you're not worthy of respect, we're not giving you respect. If you're not worthy of honor, we're not giving you honor. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned, petitioned for redress in the most humblest of terms. 
So they've been trying, they've been trying, they've been trying, they've been trying. Our repeated petitions have only have been answered only by repeated injury. Last resort. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Which is defined a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7, if you're not worthy of respect, if you're not worthy of honor, we're not going to give it to you. And the independence raged on. I want to recommend a book to you called The 100 Bible Verses That Made America. I've recommended it several times. We got it in corner books. Chapter 16, 1750. So about 15 years before the American Revolution, this gentleman named Jonathan Mayhew preached a sermon about this side of the argument and basically said, but how is this an argument for obedience to such rulers who do not perform the pleasure of God by doing good, but the pleasure of the devil by doing evil, such as not, therefore they are not God's ministers, but they are the devil's ministers. John Adams was 14 years old and he read this over and over and over till his quote, John Adams quote, till the substance of it, this sermon, was incorporated in my nature, indelibly engraved in my memory. And they say that this sermon on January 30th, 1750 was the seeds of the American Revolution about 15 years before it happened. This is American history coming right from this verse of Scripture. Now, so what do we do? What do we do? The first thing that we do is we realize you know things are going to get crazy in 24 or 18 months of 2024. So I want to encourage you to think through the topics, the policies, and all those things now. And we put a QR code for you at the bottom of five Ps that we've put together, we've used before. I'll tell you exactly what they are. You can hit that QR code. And the, the five Ps are this. Prayer, first of all, we want to be people of prayer for our nation and our officials and just prayer for God to do his work. Number two is policies. What are the policies of the candidate? What are they promoting? Number three, what are the partnerships of the candidate? What are the team that they would build? Who would they make vice president? Who would they put in their cabinet? Who would they put as, as, as uh, you know, different people at different levels, local and state? All those things. Who would they put around them? What would be the team that they would build, their partnerships? What endorsements have they received? Do you believe in those organizations that have endorsed them? What's their party's platform? Read the party's platform. Number four, who's the person? What's their experience? What's their family like? What's their character like? What's their education? What's their motivation for public service? And number five, participate. Vote. If you don't vote, then you don't get to complain. Vote. Run for office. Serve in a different place to help with the voting process. Whatever it is, take those five Ps. And another thing on there is a letter that I've written, wrote it about a couple years ago, because every time I am invited to something, I make half the world mad. So give you a little bit of heart, which my heart is the heart of Billy Graham. I'll never have his ministry, but I want to have his heart. He served 13 presidents, seven Republican, six Democrat. And to allow God to use me wherever he puts me, whenever he puts me, to whoever he puts me with. So God, through the believer, and then the last thing I want to give you, I already printed it out, five action points, already in your listening guide as we wrap up. Here it is. What do we do? What's the action points? 
Of course, the first one is we watch more Fox News and CNN. That's what we do. That's what we got to do, right? That's the end of the sermon. I got something better for you. Number one, pray for your heart. What's your heart? What's your heart? Number two, pray for our leaders. It's a tough, tough, tough job. Pray for our leaders. When's the last time you've prayed for Governor Abbott? When's the last time you prayed for President Biden? When's the last time you prayed for your senator, your congressmen and women? Pray for your leaders. First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter two commands us in the word of God to pray for our leaders. Number three, shine with Jesus' love, not man's anger. Shine with Jesus' love, not man's anger. The currency of politics today is anger and outrage, and the disposition of a believer is love and truth and spirit. Stand strong and love deep. Number four, vote and participate in our government. Don't just complain. Number five, and this is what I end with, Remember our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven where we eagerly await our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't need a savior in the government. You need a savior in your heart. Yes, it's important who's in office, but it's more important who's in office of your heart. Have you trusted Jesus as your savior? Are you walking with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? and allowing God to do his work in your life. So if you heard me say, oh, he's for that guy. Oh, he's for this. You heard me wrong. You heard me say, oh, we need to turn this whole thing upside down and revolution, who's with me? You heard me wrong. If you heard me teach you Romans 13 of submissiveness of the believer and servanthood of the government, you heard me right. Let's walk in that, first in your heart. Father, may the AirPods be out of our ears and may your word be deep in our hearts. We love our nation. We pray for our nation. We pray for elected individuals. We pray, Father, that you'd put the right people in the right places, in the right offices, They'd realize they're servants of God. There's something higher than the law of the land. There's the God of the universe. So we pray. And Father, may we walk as winsome people underneath the greater mission of God. We love our nation. We pray for our nation. We see your hand in our nation. And we pray for our hearts too. We love you, God, and we thank you. Where's your heart with the Lord before we wrap up? I don't want you to just get a civics lesson. Do you know Jesus? Are you just so mad you can't see straight anymore and just need to be reminded God's, God's got a heart? James 1, verse 20 says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.